on the website. But we are back in Nehemiah. There's so much to learn from Nehemiah. I have just found that Nehemiah has been feeding my soul and my heart and my mind with what I have needed. And I, I pray that it's doing the same for you. So Nehemiah chapter 4. Well, there is no doubt that things have changed in our culture towards Christianity over the last 20 years. I graduated from high school in 1997, so that was 21 years ago. And I can say even back in the late 90s, in 1997, I can remember at least that far back, I can say that there was still a certain sort of respect. There was a certain sort of politeness towards Christianity in general that has now evaporated at large in our culture today. And, and the difference that I see in those last two decades anyway is that our American culture has kind of changed from something where Christianity was an option, one of many options, but it was still seen as a valid option to the point where every, uh, everybody that can, in, uh, I shouldn't say everybody, but those who can in, in the government, in the schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, would like to see Christianity erased. And what I mean by that is not that it's just a, it's not a valid option anymore. It's now seen as evil. So what you now believe, if you believe that Jesus is the only Savior, if you believe what we sang in some of those songs this morning, then you are now not just seen as a good person anymore. The average person on the street might see you that way. But in general, the tide has turned more and more and more to what it has been for centuries and for millennia for Christians all around the world to the point where we are now seen as the enemy. We are, our beliefs are seen as actually evil. And this is one reason that I am so excited about Northshire Bible Institute and what our kids are doing as they're going through the storyline of the Bible in three years, what our high schoolers are doing. Uh, we showed a video at the very beginning of, of the promo of their study, Jesus Among Secular Gods. I'm excited about those things because we are at a point in our culture that we live in where my job as a pastor is not just to prepare you to share the gospel, but also to prepare you to the point where if somebody pushes back against your faith, which they will, if you make it known that you are a Christian, that you are not only able to articulate and share the gospel with them in a loving way, but that you are also able in a loving way to push back a little bit and say, yeah, that's what you might have seen in Newsweek magazine, but let me tell you how we really got the Bible. That's why I'm trying to equip you in that today. And I want you to be prepared I want you to be ready for the spiritual challenges, the spiritual attacks that are upon us now, and unless God does a major work, that will be ahead of us yet to come. That's one of my burdens for you and for us as a, as a church, is to prepare you for this. And Nehemiah has so much to teach us about spiritual attacks, and not just spiritual attacks, but also about fear. And in fact, Nehemiah gives us the antidote for spiritual attacks and fear. So if you're not a Nehemiah yet, like me, then make sure that you do turn to Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. And see, I can't even find Nehemiah this morning. Um, so be sure and turn to Psalms. That's an easy place to find it if you don't have Nehemiah in front of you. And then uh, turn to the left of Psalms and you will hit Nehemiah. So two weeks ago, we left uh, Nehemiah beginning to build the wall with the people in chapter 3. And do you remember how we saw that the people were all 
working together. It was a beautiful thing. It was a picture of the body of Christ, people from all sorts of different backgrounds working together with one mission for God's glory. And so the people just continued to build the wall, and they got along great, and everybody was happy, and they all cheered and went home, right? No, we're not in heaven yet. And so what happens? As soon as God's work begins, the opposition appears. And that's what we see today in Nehemiah chapter 4. So the first thing that I want you to see today is that when we are doing God's work, the enemy will attack. When we are doing God's work, there will be spiritual attack. And I had Bob read the whole chapter because it's a story. I wanted you to see the big picture there. I'm going to read most of it as I go through the sermon as well because I want it to be fresh in your minds, especially with taking a Sunday off of Nehemiah last Sunday. So go ahead and take a look at verse 1. Let's read these first few verses and see the spiritual attack begin to approach. It says, Now when Sambalat heard that, they, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? So wait a second. Let's just stop here. I want to I see if you're reading carefully what we just read. Before, in chapter 2, we already saw that there was some opposition to the building of the wall, but do you notice what's happening now? Did you see that? In verse 2, Sambalot is not just talking to the Jews who are building the walls. What does he have with him? He has an army. He literally has an army with him. And you get the idea that the people are building the wall and this army approaches. It's probably a, a kind of a small army, but it's an army. It's the army of this region of Samaria. And he's standing there taunting them in front of the army, trying to get the army riled up and trying to show the Jews that he's going to try to stop what God has put in their hearts to do and what God had promised would do as we would happen as we've seen as we've gone through Nehemiah. And you get this idea that, that he's just standing there yelling out, you know, what are these feeble Jews doing? And that would have really struck a chord with them because they felt feeble. They knew that they were small compared to those who had originally built the wall. They felt their weakness. And so he's striking a chord with them. Do you notice how he says, will they sacrifice? One commentator says that the idea of this in Hebrew is that their only chance of getting this wall up is prayer. They, they better pray hard because that was part of the sacrifices. That's the idea there because that's their only chance of getting this up. They're not going to do it. Just look at them. They're not builders. And then he says, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Now Sanballat is is hitting on something that has a little bit of truth to it because there are heaps of rubbish, but he's also exaggerating. Do you notice what he says? He says that the stones are burned. Well, what did we find out earlier in Nehemiah? We found out that the stones are knocked down, the wall is knocked down, there are heaps of rubbish, but what is burned? The gates are burned. 
Now, there may have been a few stones that were burned when the gates were burned, but not all of the stones were burned, which is the idea that Sanballat is giving. And I want to remind you, as we start to think about spiritual attacks, that exaggeration has been a tactic of the enemy from the beginning. Do you remember what Satan said to Eve? He said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? No, he's exaggerating. God had given them all the trees of the garden except for one, and Satan loves to exaggerate when he attacks us spiritually. Take a look at verse 3. It gets worse. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Eric, will you go to this next slide here? A few of you remember this cartoon. This is Chester and Spike from Looney Tunes. And Chester was that bulldog that would just walk around like a bulldog doing his dog thing and looking for cats to chase and that sort of thing. And Spike was this little tiny dog that would jump around him and say, hey, Chester, what are we going to do today? What do you want to do? That's the idea that you get with, as you read the book of Nehemiah. Sambalot is this serious guy leading the army, and Tobiah is just standing there, and you almost get the idea that it was kind of silent when he first said this, and then maybe a few guys in the army were like, oh, <laughs> good one. You know, where'd you, how long did it take you to come up with that? So, so Tobiah is giving this, trying to make this joke, you know, that if a fox climbs up on that wall, he would knock it down. You can go ahead and go to the next the next slide, which is back to number one. Otherwise, you'll be thinking about Looney Tunes the whole time, dynamite and things like that. Well, we all know how big foxes are, right? There are red foxes, one type of fox, in every single state in the U.S., but we had never seen a fox until we moved to Vermont. And one visits our backyard now, and then foxes are pretty small, actually, considering uh, that they're in the canine family. And in fact, foxes are so small, some of your cats are probably bigger than a fox. You know, you know what size we're talking about here. And he's saying, look, if, a, if even a fox gets up on this wall, it's just going to be knocked down. And again, he is exaggerating. Excavations have shown us that even though the wall was smaller than it was before, that the wall from Nehemiah's time was about nine feet thick after they were done. And they had already begun the foundation work at this point. In just a few verses, they're going to be halfway. So this wasn't true either. He's just exaggerating and trying everything he can do to discourage them. In fact, later in Nehemiah, we're going to see when the wall is completed, they're actually marching on top of the wall, having a celebration of praise, blowing trumpets and playing instruments and singing to the Lord on top of the wall. But the enemy's attacking. I want to remind you as we get into this idea, though, of the enemy attacking, that it is not the person who is attacking when, it is the person who's attacking, but it's not the, the person necessarily attacking. That's what we see, but it's Satan and his demons attacking when somebody is trying to stop God's work. Why do I say that? Because scripture tells us in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So the reason Ephesians 6.12 is there is to remind us that 
the people that we see, the people that we talk to, the people who may uh, push back against you or wish that Christianity would be erased, those are not the real people who are your enemies because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemy is what Ephesians 6.12 says is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And listen to this, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is spiritual, and yet he appears, he makes his attacks often through people, but they are not the enemy. Our enemy is Satan and his demons. Take a look at verse 4. Nehemiah says, this is a prayer that you probably haven't prayed recently, and I'll talk about why maybe. It says in verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Verse 5, Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out of your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Wow. Nehemiah's having a bad day, isn't he? He's not excited about this army approaching. I mean, you, you read this and you think, that's strange. That's really different. We don't normally pray that way. And there's a reason for that. I'll talk about that right now. But I want you to think about if you've read the Psalms recently, then this doesn't sound too strange to you. There's quite a few Psalms where the psalmist prays exactly something like this, where he prays, God, don't forgive this person because of their evil. What's going on there? Why do we see this even sometimes in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament? Well, there's three simple things that I want you to think about. Derek Kidner is a great Old Testament scholar, and he gives three simple reasons that people would pray like this sometimes in the Old Testament. First of all, remember that these are cries against injustice. Nehemiah's request was for divine judgment against sin. So his prayer, I don't think, was so much against their salvation as it is for justice to be done. Remember, God is a God of justice. It's okay to pray for justice to be done. Imagine what you would be praying if there was an army up against you and your family. He's praying for justice. Second, this is really important, it was a prayer for God to act. He wasn't asking for permission to take personal vengeance. He's saying, Lord, you take this. You take this from me. Do you notice that? Even in the Psalms, if you read what's called the imprecatory Psalms, where they're praying like this, they're not saying, God, let me do this to this person. They're calling for God's judgment, and they're leaving it to the Lord. It's a way of expressing your emotions when you're being attacked. But here's the other side. I agree with Derek Kidner. You may not all agree. But I think that on this side of the cross, number three, like Derek Kidner says, Christians don't pray like that. Why? Because we have more revelation than Nehemiah had. We have more revelation than the psalmist have. We know that God's own son was unjustly killed for you and for me. We didn't deserve that mercy. We didn't deserve that grace. And yet God did that for us. And so I believe in the new covenant, we are called to a higher standard. Jesus calls us to that. Nehemiah didn't have that framework to work from where he knew that Jesus would receive his shame, the rejection that we deserved. We know that we have our name written in heaven now. And so Jesus says, pray for your enemies. 
pray for those who insult you and in fact rejoice because your name's written in heaven. That's what you need. So we are in a different covenant now and I believe that changes things. But what I want you to notice, I'll let your head kind of wrestle with that for a while. Keep coming to Sunday School or Northshire Bible Institute if you want to wrestle more with those types of things. And for right now, what I want you to notice is this big picture when we're doing God's work, the enemy will attack. Number two, for just a moment, when we are doing God's work, we will sometimes get scared. Take a look at verse six. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now, here's why this is so intimidating. You read that and you try to put yourself in their shoes and you can feel a little bit of their fear. But then I want you to think about this. Sambalot is from Samaria and has brought an army from there. And what direction have they come from? They've come from the north down to Jerusalem. Tobiah is an Ammonite and he has brought some of his people from the east. He has come from the east. And then the Arabs were from the south, and the people of Ashdod, which are the Philistines, were from the west. So God's people are surrounded by people from every single direction. They believe that God will keep his promises. Uh, Nehemiah has rallied them. He's reminded them of God's promises, but they're scared now. And how do I know they're scared? Because take a look at verse 8. It says, They all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. They see all these enemies on every side. And what I want you to notice is that even though God's people sometimes have a hard time uniting, the enemies of God's people usually don't if they're attacking God's people. Have you ever noticed that? It's in the Bible, Herod and Pilate. Do you remember that? When they went against Jesus, it says they became friends that day. They hated each other before that, but they could work together to try to figure out what to do with Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are another great example. They hated each other, but they united together to get rid of Jesus when they couldn't stand each other before. So how much more do God's people need to be united? We need to be united in the work that God has for us. Take a look at even more reasons for fear in verse 9. It says, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is, is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Notice in verse 10, the people are discouraged for good reason. The wall was one and a half miles to two and a half miles in circumference. We're not exactly sure, but from the excavations that they've found, it's somewhere between one and a half to two and a half miles around because this is a smaller wall than what will be rebuilt later if you go to the the modern Jerusalem today. And so this is a big wall. This is a big deal and they're halfway through now and they're starting to get discouraged. Have any of you ever felt that? You're discouraged halfway through a major project, but not only and you're tired of it, the newness has worn off, but not only that, now you have enemies coming against you. You can just imagine why they're feeling this way. Verse 11, 
And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. The rumors are getting out. People are hearing what the enemies are saying. And then it gets worse in verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, 10 times, that's like saying in Hebrew, they said this over and over and over, you must return to us. Verse 13, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So now they not only have this fear from within the people, but now they have Jews who are out in these villages outside of Jerusalem. Remember, we saw two weeks ago that a lot of people came from outside Jerusalem to help build the wall. Their families are now coming from these villages and saying, look, we saw an army march past us. You won't believe the things that they said to us. We are going to die if you don't come home. There's fear. And so what does Nehemiah do? He stops, right? No. God's glory always takes precedent. God always keeps his promises. God's work must continue no matter what the threats are. And so notice what he does. Well, they pray. We've seen that over and over, and we'll see it again in this chapter. But then notice what he does. He's very practical. He takes action. He weakens, I'm sorry, he strengthens the weak places. And so he says, okay, We're scared. We're hearing all these rumors about what's going to happen. People from the villages, Jews are now coming to us telling us to stop. So go ahead and come on into the walls then, guys. And then in just a little bit, you're going to see that that he put people stationed by their clans, by their family. So he says, get behind him then. I'm giving this guy a, a bow that can shoot 400 yards. They had bows like that at that time. I'm giving him a spear. I'm giving him a sword. And you're going to be behind him and help him in this work. And we're just going to do this together. When we're doing God's work, not only will the enemy attack, but sometimes we will get scared. And I find it fascinating in God's word that God acknowledges that we will get scared, and he tells us not to fear. He tells us that he is with us. He tells us not to make decisions based on fear. Just yesterday afternoon, I was mowing my lawn. And as I was mowing my lawn, I was listening to uh, the songs that we were going to sing this morning, the, the playlist for the worship, and I was really encouraged by it. I was singing along as much as I could as I was mowing and having a great time just worshiping God, remembering his promises, delighting in him. About an hour later, though, something happened. And I didn't really realize it until after the fact. I started to get tired. The project was large. Many of you know I have a push mower. It's a big project. I was starting to get tired and discouraged. And I started to think about problems in the church. And I started to get down. And I started to question God. And then all of a sudden I remembered what I was preaching this morning. I said, wait a second. I'm doing what I'm going to preach tomorrow. The enemy is now attacking spiritually, and I now have fear, so what do I need to do? Number three, when we're doing God's work, our hope is remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Take a look at verse 14 in your Bibles. This is so important. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the antidote for spiritual attacks and fear. Remember the Lord. Do you see this quote behind me by Warren Wearsby? It's so good. He says, if we fear the Lord, we need not fear the enemy. And you might just be sitting here thinking, well, isn't that a good pastor? You know, you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do as a pastor. You're, you're telling people to hope in God, to remember the Lord, but you're really just numbing people's minds with some sort of good feeling, kind of like a drug numbs their minds, or kind of like a crutch helps people along. Well, if that's what you were just thinking, then you don't know my Lord. You don't know our Lord if you think that remembering the Lord is not the antidote to spiritual attacks and fear. My Lord, our Lord, is the one who spoke to the wind and the waves and it obeyed him. Jesus is the one who spoke to demons and they left. Jesus is the one who spoke to people's diseases and they were immediately and, and uh, physically uh, healed. Their bodies were restored. He's the one who took what was not enough, like the five loaves and the two fish, and made it enough. He is the one who spoke to dead people, and they came to life again. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that it was by Jesus that all things were created. And then the Apostle Paul goes further, and he says, all things were created through him and for him. Remember Jesus. Remember the Lord. Nehemiah is not the first to tell his people to remember the Lord. Listen to this. Moses said something similar in Exodus. God's people are surrounded by water. Their enemies are coming towards them. There's nowhere for them to go. They're going to die. And Moses encourages them with who the Lord is. He says, stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. Joshua and Caleb said something similar in Numbers when God's people were too scared to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy, the Lord, he's actually the one telling the priest to tell people this before they go to battle for the promised land against God's enemies. Moses said something similar again to the people just before he died as he was encouraging them that they would make it into the promised land, that God is faithful. Joshua told God's people something similar in the book of Joshua when the people were discouraged from constant attacks by God's enemies. And then here's the incredible thing between us and them. On this side of the cross, we remember Jesus. There was a song this week that we, we sang in prayer meeting. It's a song I hadn't sung in a long time. Some of you will recognize it. It's an old hymn says, be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Think about that. The Lord is on your side. Think about what that means. Romans chapter 8 tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus as your Savior, then the Lord is on your side. The one who created everything is on 
your side. The God who knows the beginning from the end is on your side. The, the God who destroyed Pharaoh's army is on your side. The God who provided for his people in the wilderness is on your side. So remember the Lord. Again, I go back to the Psalms. If you think about it, so much of the Psalms is telling God's people, remember. They rehearse what God has done. They say, remember what God has done. Put your hope in the Lord. Are you remembering who the Lord is? We so often forget the power of our God. We so often forget because Jesus hasn't returned yet. We forget that Jesus is not equal with Satan. We might know that mentally, but do you ever struggle believing that spiritually or in your life with your fears or when you are being attacked? Let me explain it this way. If I go into children's church right now and I tell the kids that I'm going to arm wrestle them, then I'm going to win every time. I guarantee you. I'll beat those kids. But then if I say, you know what? I'm the champion of the children's church room, so now I'm going to wrestle Tim Oliver. <laughs> I'm going to be decimated. We're not even going to try it. Now, I'm not Satan. I promise you. Tim is not Jesus. But I want to give you that idea. We so often think that Satan and Jesus are equals in strength. Do you see what I'm saying? Because Satan is such a strong enemy and he attacks us so severely and we've been left in the dust when we've given into those temptations or seen him decimate God's work before, sometimes mentally we start to think that because he can defeat us, maybe he can defeat Jesus. The word tells us no. Jesus is stronger. And listen to this. This is incredible. Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Do you notice that? He doesn't just say, this is incredible. It's Romans 16, 20. You might want to look it up this week. He doesn't just say that, that God will crush Satan. He doesn't just say that that Jesus will crush Satan. He says the God of peace, and then it's tied into Jesus at the end of the verse, will crush Satan under your feet. The Holy Spirit is in you if you know Christ. The Lord is for you. Remember the Lord when you're tempted to fear. Remember the Lord when you are attacked spiritually. Remember the Lord. So I want to ask you this morning, do you know that the Lord is for you? Because we're not born with the Lord being for us because we've rebelled against him. We've sinned, and that separates us from God. But the Bible gives us the solution. It's in the gospel. It says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, the gospel is that simple and yet that profound, and you believe that he was raised from the dead, proving that he paid that full penalty for your sins, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. It's an incredible truth. You can know the Lord is for you. So what's the result? Take a look at verse 15. 
When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, in other words, what they had just done, they had reminded themselves of the Lord, they had stationed themselves, they had prepared, they had prayed, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And then briefly, let's look at number four. When we are doing God's work, trust in God, use wisdom, and work hard. It's okay that we just spend a minute on this because we're going to come back to this in Nehemiah later. What I want you to see as I read these last few verses is that God's sovereignty and our responsibility are not in conflict in the Bible. Yes, they look like they're in conflict. That's because we are not God. That's because we can't see everything from God's perspective. We can only see it from our human perspective, even with the Holy Spirit's help. What I want you to see is that over and over in the Bible, and we'll come back to this in Nehemiah, they pray and then they do the work. They don't just do the work and forget to pray or else they won't have God's blessing. But they don't just pray, they go do the work or else they're not doing what God has called them to do. And that's what we see here in these last few verses. I'm actually going to go ahead and not read them since I had, uh, since I had uh, Bob read them earlier. But what I want you to think about is you'll notice here in these verses, the people are doing the work and they're trusting in God and working hard. You're leading a ministry. You're involved in a ministry. You need to not only be praying, but you've also got to get out there and do the hard work. You're raising kids. You've got to not only pray, you've got to do the hard work and not just do the hard work, but pray. We see both of these beautifully in this chapter and all throughout the book of Nehemiah. When I taught this to third, fourth, and fifth graders this summer at camp, here's what I told them. If you don't walk away from today with anything else, think of these two things. Trust God, and you're being attacked spiritually. Trust God, pray, and keep following Jesus even when it's hard. Even when it's hard. Worldwide, there are about 100,000 people who die each year from poisonous snake bites. I didn't realize it was that high, but I wasn't surprised because I hate snakes. So God put that fear in me for a good reason. 100,000 people die each year from poisonous snake bites. But the incredible thing is that there's two things that could completely eradicate all of those deaths. There's two things if they happen, almost 100% of people who have any type of poisonous snake bite will survive. One, if they get to the hospital soon enough. And two, if they're given the antidote, the anti-venom quickly enough. Just two simple things. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world in which there is much to fear spiritually and in which we will be attacked spiritually by that ancient serpent, the devil. But don't fear. Jesus is with you. If you know Jesus as your Savior, and Jesus' supply of anavenom, anavenom, I can't say that. Jesus' antidote never runs out. Let's pray. God, we worship you this morning as we look at the wonderful things that are in the book of Nehemiah, we praise you that we are on this side of the cross. Because of Jesus, it really changes everything. You were a great and mighty God then. You don't ever change, but 
So much more of you has been revealed to us now, and our access is free to your throne. And so we praise you for that this morning. I pray that whatever spiritual attacks we may be feeling this coming week, whether it's a simple temptation within our own hearts from our own flesh, or whether it's somebody questioning our faith or seeing our faith attacked in the classroom, Lord, help us to trust you, help us to not fear, and help us to continue to do the work you've laid out for us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You could stand.